0: As we continue reading through the Gospels chronologically, today we'll be looking at Luke chapter 13 beginning with verse 22, down through chapter 14, verse 35, and then we'll look at John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. So here's where we are with regard to Jesus' ministry. Jesus has been ministering in Judea, and He arrives in Jerusalem in these passages— we see in John chapter 10, verse 22, that it's the ninth month of the year, that's just three months or so, prior to Jesus' crucifixion. If you'd like an explanation of the chronological order that's preferred here, then see the notes at the end of John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. So let's begin our reading today with Luke chapter 13, verse 22, where we're talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees again. Verse 22. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, "'Lord, are there a few who are saved?' And he said to them, "'Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, "'Lord, Lord, open for us,' and he will answer and say to you, "'I do not know you, where you are from.' Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you, where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. Now, after reading from the beginning of Luke chapter 12, one might deduct that very few are actually on their way to life in the Messianic kingdom that Jesus has been preaching. Jesus has been blasting the hypocrisy of the most well-respected religious leaders of his day. Based on Jesus' comments, a man asked Jesus in verse 23, "'Lord, are there few who are saved?' Jesus explains that there are a lot of religious people around them, but they have rejected the message of salvation. He's talking here about the religious leaders. However, the little people, the common man, they received the message of salvation. Those hypocritical Pharisees and Sadducees rejected the message, prompting Jesus to point out in verse 30, And indeed there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last." I guess being religious like the Pharisees and Sadducees just isn't quite enough. There's one more interesting and very telling statement here by Jesus when he says in verse 29 the following, "'They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God.'" In other words, there will be Gentiles who will be in the presence of God, while unbelieving Jews, well, they will be without. To a Jew in Jesus' day, wow, that's ultimate irony. Interestingly enough, the many versus few saved controversy raged among the Jews in the first century, much as it does among Christian Bible scholars today. We know from the record of Jewish oral tradition, that's called the Mishnah, that some scholars then held to the notion that only the committed adherents to Judaism would enter the Messianic kingdom, while other Jewish authorities in the first century, they held that only those who blatantly rejected Judaism would be exempted. You can imagine the thought processes that must have been working when this man had heard a message from Jesus that even the Pharisees, the Pharisees themselves weren't guaranteed a place in the kingdom. And that would be yet another doctrinal deviation from the two positions already held during that era. If you'd like more information on the kingdom message, then be sure and look at the introduction of my notes in Matthew chapter 5. Beginning in verse 31, they make an attempt to scare Jesus out of Jerusalem. Verse 31, on that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings but you were not willing. See, your house is left you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you shall say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, the Pharisees, of all people, they warned Jesus to flee Jerusalem lest Herod should kill him. Do you suppose they had an ulterior motive here? Well, Jesus replies that Herod doesn't control his destiny, And, by the way, he's not going to be intimidated into leaving Jerusalem by a bunch of weasel mouthed Pharisees either. Verse 32 is packed full of implications. Here's what it says. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. I'm certain that Jesus' disciples must have reflected back on these words later on, And they must have realized that Jesus was undoubtedly speaking of his own resurrection. Notice the bold words Jesus uses here to say, in essence, Herod, that fox, does not control my destiny. Now, if you're looking for messianic implications, they're all here in these five verses, though subtle as they may be. Verse 35 has particular significance when Jesus says, see... Your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, You shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus pulls together two prophetic passages of Scripture to make his point here. The first is drawn from Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 5, which says, But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. In that passage, Jeremiah is prophesying the fall of the house of Judah to the Babylonians. That fall, by the way, was finalized with the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. From that time through Jesus' day, Israel had been subservient to other nations. Since that time, they'd been looking for a Messiah. And that's what makes the second part of that verse so significant. It's a quotation from a Messianic psalm, Psalm 118.26, which says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Now, the name of the Lord in that passage is the special name for the God of the Jews, Jehovah, also pronounced Yahweh. After the resurrection of Jesus, the authentication of Jesus as the Messiah will be complete. Jesus is Jehovah. So, Jesus is telling them that while Jerusalem has suffered the desolation prophesied by Jeremiah... Jesus is the Messiah that comes in the name of the Lord. Incidentally, Jesus again quotes from Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 5, and Psalm 118, 26, over in Matthew chapter 23, verses 38 and 39. That brings us to Luke chapter 14. In the first six verses, we see the healing of a man with dropsy, verse 1. Now it happened, as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely, and behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering, spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent, and he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? and they could not answer him regarding these things. In this passage, Jesus goes to the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees on the Sabbath day, presumably after a service at the local synagogue. This ruler Pharisee was probably a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council over the Jews in Jerusalem. At the dinner, verse 1 indicates that they, the Pharisees, watched him, Jesus, very closely. The Greek imperfect tense for watch there would indicate careful scrutiny over a period of time. Then a man with a disease just happens to show up on the Sabbath in front of Jesus and the Pharisees. Was that a coincidence, or was it a setup? Well, this disease, called dropsy, we're told was one in ancient manuscripts described as a swelling of the parts of the body due to fluid collecting in the tissues. As Jesus sees the man... He queries these influential leaders regarding the appropriateness of healing this man on the Sabbath. It's interesting to me that there seems to be no dispute this day. Well, what's the difference? Could it be that because this was presumably one of the honored guests of the chief Pharisee, perhaps making him one of those highly esteemed Jewish leaders, that no one wanted to interfere with his healing? They really were a bunch of hypocrites, weren't they? Think of all the other times that Jesus was railed against for performing the same act of healing on commoners on the Sabbath. This favoritism notion is supported by the discussion that follows we'll look at in a few moments in verses 7 through 14. Incidentally, there really was no prohibition in the law of Moses regarding healing on the Sabbath day. That provision had become part of the oral traditions that the Pharisees had appended to the law. And now for that discussion we referred to a few moments ago, beginning in chapter 14, verse 7. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, Give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place." But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or supper, Do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Well, this hypocrisy that we spoke of in verses 1-6 through doesn't go unnoticed by Jesus. He then begins a parable taken right out of Proverbs chapter 25 verses 6 and 7 about good banquet etiquette, which says, Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of the great, for it is better that he say to you, Come up here, than that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen." However, I think the intent here was really to draw a contrast concerning the lack of objection these leaders had regarding the healing of the influential man on the Sabbath day when they had furiously objected to such activity on the Sabbath day when it involved common people. In verse 12, he turns his attention to the host regarding the social status of his guests, mostly people who can return the hospitality. Jesus admonishes him to consider inviting those who have no ability to reciprocate with an invitation to the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. These Jewish leaders did know how to scratch each other's backs, didn't they? Well, so to speak. Now, the point of this parable must not be overlooked. It's about the self-promotion of the Pharisees. They exalted themselves rather than being exalted by God. God. There is certainly a lesson to be learned by all of us from this parable. Here it is. Let God do the exalting, and let's just do the serving. All right, it's getting a little sticky, so how about a change of subject? And that's what we get in verse 15. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. And sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, "'Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind.' And the servant said, "'Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room.' Then the master said to the servant, "'Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled.' For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Well, perhaps this man who seems to interrupt Jesus as he's addressing the host of the banquet is trying to take some heat off the hosts when he blurts out in verse 15, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then again, it may be that this man is ready to get down to the purpose for which they've invited Jesus to dinner in the first place, and that's to harvest some words of indictment against Jesus. There seems to be a trend. When Jesus is present, the subject always seems to get around to the kingdom message. So, let's get started. It's safe, therefore, to assume that the parable beginning in verse 16 concerns this kingdom presentation. The kingdom message was what Jesus preached throughout His earthly ministry. This message specifically addresses the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah and the establishment of the Davidic throne and based in Jerusalem. If you'd like to know more about that kingdom message, then consult my notes on Matthew chapter 5, the introduction to that chapter. In this crowd of Jewish leaders, it would be assumed that any overthrow of Roman authority by the Messiah would automatically include these Jewish leaders in the new government. However, when you read the parable Jesus spoke before these influential Jews, it would appear that he's telling them right to their faces that they are out in lieu of the common neglected Jewish populace. Look at the conclusion of the parable in verse 24. He says, For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. The Jewish leaders, well, they had opportunities to embrace the Messiahship of Jesus, but they declined the invitation. Incidentally, the marriage supper of the Lamb in Matthew chapter 25 outlines this very same issue of entry into the Messianic kingdom, also sometimes referred to as the kingdom of heaven, and also referred sometimes as the kingdom of God. Then Jesus talks about the sacrifices of discipleship beginning in verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, But if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, now the setting has changed, and here's the great multitude that seems to accumulate around Jesus. What's their interest with Jesus anyway? Well, he miraculously healed and preached the message of the kingdom. In the people's minds, this was the real deal— Roman oppression may very well soon come to a screeching halt in lieu of the Messiah's reign. And here's that Messiah right there in their presence. Little did they realize that becoming a disciple of Jesus at this point meant quite the opposite from their anticipations. It would mean following Jesus to his crucifixion in the very near future. Discipleship at this point is not at all what the people following him think it is. Now, by the way, you may want to take a look at my notes on discipleship in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 27, paralleled in Mark 8 and Luke 9. Now, you must understand this concept in order to differentiate between the call of discipleship by believers today in contrast to this special call to discipleship then, that, by the way, then involved forsaking everything, including one's family ties, to follow Jesus all the way to the crucifixion. It was only less than three months away. Ultimately, who did follow Jesus to the crucifixion a few weeks later? Well, the answer is in Mark chapter 14, verse 50, when it says, Then they all forsook him and fled. So with the crucifixion just weeks away, do these people really want to become disciples? Consider this. Unless these people have no consideration whatsoever for the impact that this will have on their families, and don't even mind losing their own lives, they can't be disciples on this last stretch of Jesus' ministry to the death. So Jesus uses two examples in making the point regarding one's failing to count the cost of success. He first of all talks about the successful builder. He counts the cost of the project prior to starting. Then he talks about the prudent king who counts the cost of war before his pursuit. Jesus then makes another emphasis to his point when he says in verse 33, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, many teachers have massaged and massaged these verses to try to explain away these extreme requirements, and they try to make them fit for general discipleship. Jesus fully understands that no one will actually follow him to his death, and therefore no one accurately counted the cost for this, let's call it special purpose, to the death discipleship. Let's put this passage into some perspective, shall we? First of all, know this, salvation and discipleship are not one in the same. Discipleship should follow salvation, but they're not one in the same. Second of all, To pass on the opportunity to physically follow Jesus to the death during his earthly ministry didn't mean that these people declined salvation. Jesus had already chosen his disciples for his earthly ministry. Jesus, having complete foreknowledge of events that would soon take place, discouraged these latecomers from becoming his disciples at this stage of his ministry. Many over the years have misunderstood this passage to mean that one cannot serve God without forsaking family. Now, that takes this passage way out of context. That's not taught here. What is taught is that Jesus' time on earth was short. He had no home, and those who follow him literally accompany him in his journeys. Those who follow him like that at this point would be called upon to make huge personal sacrifices that would lead to follow him to his death. Here's an important concept on serving God. When God requires it, well, who give you the grace to offer it? And for those who adamantly insist that discipleship and salvation are one and the same, these words of Jesus are particularly difficult to reconcile. Salvation is consummated when one responds to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and accepts Jesus Christ as Savior of one's life. Look at my notes on Galatians chapter two verses fifteen to twenty one to get some clarity on that issue. On the other hand, discipleship is based upon a personal choice to follow Jesus' example after salvation. Well, of course, discipleship should follow salvation, but don't make any mistake about it. Discipleship and salvation are not one and the same. They are different concepts. Then we move over to John chapter 10, beginning with verse 22, where Jesus has a confrontation with the Pharisees. Verse 22, Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. MY SHEEP HEAR MY VOICE, AND I KNOW THEM, AND THEY FOLLOW ME, AND I GIVE THEM ETERNAL LIFE, AND THEY SHALL NEVER PERISH, NEITHER SHALL ANYONE SNATCH THEM OUT OF MY HAND. MY FATHER WHO HAS GIVEN THEM TO ME IS GREATER THAN ALL, AND NO ONE IS ABLE TO SNATCH THEM OUT OF MY FATHER'S HAND. I AND MY FATHER ARE ONE. THEN THE JEWS TOOK UP STONES AGAIN TO STONE HIM. Jesus answered them, "'Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me?' The Jews answered him, saying, "'For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God.' Jesus answered them, "'Is it not written in your law, I said, You are gods?' If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken,' "'Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, "'You are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? "'If I do not the works of my Father, do not believe me. "'But if I do, though you do not believe me, "'believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him.' "'Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand.' And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. While this appears to be a continuation of the confrontation that began between the Jews and Jesus after he healed the blind man in John chapter 9— that began with verse 1 down through chapter 10, verse 21, this is not that same occasion. Some time has actually lapsed, according to verse 22, where we get a definite time fix for this occasion, where it says it was the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication, which is now known as Hanukkah, was established as a memorial to the purification and rededication of the temple by Judas Maccabeus on Kislev 25, 165 B.C. That's the December time frame. You want to know more about the Jewish festivals? Then there's a link provided here, or you can look under the topic section of BibleTrack.org. The temple had been defiled three years earlier by Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Antiochus, the king of Syria, had captured Jerusalem, plundered the temple treasury, and sacrificed a hog to the god Jupiter, the pagan god Jupiter, on the temple altar. This attempt to destroy Jewish tradition and religious practices resulted in the Maccabean Revolt, which, after three years, was successful in defeating the Assyrian armies and liberating the Jewish people. Therefore, this festival was established as an annual event along with the other festivals found in Leviticus chapter 23. Since this festival is observed on Kislev 25th, according to the Jewish calendar, each year... The date falls within a few days of our celebration of Christmas. The Jewish calendar doesn't precisely track each year with the Roman calendar. Look at the explanation on the Jewish calendar under the topic section BibleTrack.org or there's a link here on the written notes. We can therefore conclusively place this event to have taken place during Hanukkah just prior to Jesus' crucifixion. And again, if you want to know more about the chronology, look at the notes on John chapter 10 verses 1 through 21. These Pharisees and their sympathizers, they're looking for a direct statement of incrimination in verse 24. I mean, if Jesus will proclaim himself to be the Messiah, there, these Pharisees can go ahead and present him as a threat to Caesar's rule. But Jesus' time is not yet. Jesus here differentiates these men with evil intent from real followers with a sheep analogy. Sheep, being real believers... They have eternal life and hear the voice of their shepherd, who's Jesus in this analogy. These sheep then have eternal life. The message got through. These Jews showed their refusal to receive Jesus as their Savior by taking up stones to stone him in verse 31, after Jesus makes a definitive statement about his identity in verse 30. And that's when he says, "'I and my Father are one.'" Some today dispute the deity of Jesus Christ by insisting that Jesus is not proclaiming himself to be God in the flesh here in verse 30. Well, this passage clearly indicates that Jesus did indeed proclaim his deity here. And by the way, the Jews clearly understood it in verse 33 when they say, you being a man, make yourself God. Then their verbal duel with Jesus becomes most interesting. Jesus confuses them in their outrage in verses 34 and 35 by quoting Psalm 82 6. That verse says, I said, you are gods and all of you are children of the Most High. Now, here's a note from the Expositor's Bible commentary with regard to Jesus' usage of Psalm 82 6. And I quote, had Jesus not meant to convey a claim to deity, he undoubtedly would have protested the action of the Jews by declaring that they had misunderstood him. On the contrary, Jesus introduced an fortiori argument from the Psalms to strengthen his statement. Psalm 82.6 represents God as addressing a group of beings whom he calls gods, that's the Hebrew word Elohim, and sons of the Most High. If then these terms can be applied to ordinary mortals or even angels, how could Jesus be accused of blasphemy when he applied them to himself whom the Father set apart and sent into the world on a special mission? Jesus was not offering a false claim. He was merely asserting what he was by rights. And that's the end of the quote. Jesus uses this passage from the Old Testament, one which the Pharisees obviously did not understand, to thoroughly confuse them. How do you reply to that? Well, let's face it, they were simply no intellectual match against God in the flesh. At the conclusion of this confrontation with the Pharisees, verse 40 tells us that Jesus' heads across the Jordan River...